While You Were Folding, Episode 14, Unequally Yoked with Wendy Clark. Hi, I'm Catherine Boucher, and you're listening to While You Were Folding. This show is my weekly excuse to talk about my favorite things, marriage, parenting, faith, friendship, culture, what I'm reading and watching, and whatever else strikes my fancy. I've been a wife for 10 years and a mother for eight. I won't pretend to be an expert. I will introduce you to some amazing guests, ask a whole bunch of questions, invite you into the conversation, and encourage you to share what you heard while you were folding. Let's go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of Easter. Thank you for the gift of this season. Help us to spend these 50 days to enter fully into what the gift of your resurrection means for us. Help us to remember and to know that you died for us on the cross individually and that you would have done it just for us. And help us to just know and trust in your love. Help us to lean on your mercy and help us to remember to get up again every time that we fall and to know that you, just like the father of the prodigal son, will be there for us with open arms and that you will run to us and that we should not be afraid to come to you when we make mistakes. Help us to just rest in that and to trust in that, especially during this Easter season and help us to celebrate the joy of the resurrection Thank you so much for that gift. We pray these things through your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy Easter! I hope all of you had a wonderful Easter weekend. And like I said in the opening prayer, remember, Easter is 50 days. It lasts right up until Pentecost Sunday. So keep celebrating. Keep enjoying those jelly beans and those chocolate bunnies. Um, it's, It's definitely my favorite time of year liturgically. I love Advent and I love the celebrations with the Advent wreath and everything else, but I think there's just nothing that compares with Holy Week. I wanted to circle back and tell you about my general confession. I'm going to go into more detail in a future episode talking about what my general confession was like, but I had my general confession last Tuesday, and thank you for those of you who reached out and said that you were praying for me. It was such an awesome, healing, beautiful experience, and it went wonderfully. And for now, I'll just share that I went through a whole bunch of tissues. My eyes were nearly swollen shut for two days after the experience, but I have never felt more peace and more deep-seated joy in my life. And I'm just so grateful to my spiritual director for walking me through that experience. And I look forward to sharing more about that with you in a future episode. But I definitely needed the grace from that general confession because early the next morning, it was Dorothy's second birthday, and we left early in the morning for Disney World. We had planned this trip for, we've had it on the books for a long time, and we told the kids back Christmas morning that we were going 
to Disney World and it was everything that we hoped it would be. It was so exciting and the kids, our oldest is eight years old and then Dorothy just turned two. We have four. Um, and I'm so glad that we didn't wait until they're much older so that we could still have that window of magic and the excitement that they had with meeting all of the different characters and how much of a thrill they got out of going on the kiddie rides. They didn't go on a lot of the bigger, more exciting things, but they thought that all of it was so exciting and brand new to them. But I have to say, as wonderful as the trip was, and as much as it met and even exceeded my expectations in a lot of different ways, it was really, really strange to be traveling during Holy Week. And Philip and I decided that as awesome as it was, we definitely do not want to be on a trip anywhere during Holy Week again, because there was just something that felt off about the whole experience, the time that we were there. To be at the Magic Kingdom during Good Friday and to be fasting (laughs) and abstaining from meat and the whole thing was kind of weird. And then Easter Sunday, we had mass at the resort where we were staying in their convention center ballroom. And there's something really cool about being surrounded by hundreds of strangers and to be able to celebrate the same mass and to receive the same Jesus in the Eucharist and to be reminded of how universal the church is. But at the same time, I love Easter and the liturgical celebrations that lead up to Easter Sunday so much that it was kind of a bummer to not be at our home parish celebrating with our beloved priests, and all of the people that we know in our parish. But please do not misunderstand me. We had an awesome trip, and Disney was fantastic. But we, I think in the future, anytime we plan a vacation or a trip of any sort, I think we will try and stay away from doing that during Holy Week so that we can be home. Because it was definitely more difficult to enter into the liturgical celebration of what that time is all about. Um, But overall, the kids did really well. Toward the end, they were starting to melt down. And I wanted to share quickly a little anecdote about it because I had a not very proud mommy moment. So we got, we left on Wednesday the 28th in the morning and the kids were total troopers with the traveling and they had great attitudes about walking through the parks with the amount of walking that they were doing and waiting in lines and so on. But by the time Saturday evening rolled around, they were starting to lose their spark and the novelty of the traveling had worn off and they were getting more and more grumpy about having to wait in lines or having to eat out and all of those kinds of things that come along with travel. So by the time Easter Sunday rolled around, everyone was still feeling pretty grumpy. And we went to mass. And after mass, things just kind of snowballed and imploded. And mass, the behavior with the kids had gone just fine. And they had done great. And I told Philip, maybe as like a little carrot, 
to encourage them to continue to have good behavior that day, we could stop in the hotel lobby and get everyone one of these crazy huge donuts that they had. And then we could take everyone's picture because they had these beautiful Easter egg displays, these oversized eggs made out of chocolate that were decorated with painted on Disney characters. And I thought, oh, we'll get a picture of the kids in their cute Disney outfits in front of this display. Well, the best laid plans. (laughs) So the kids start melting down in the line for the donuts and it turns into, I want this kind of donut. No, I don't want that kind. And then we go to take the pictures and Philip sets down my coffee and his coffee and a stranger kicks over (laughs) one of them and it goes all over the marble floor and the kids aren't looking at the camera and they're whining and not even wanting to take the picture and they're wanting to know when they're going to get the donut. And we go upstairs to the hotel room and I'm already losing my mind and we get in there and everyone's sitting down and I am distributing the donuts and then the complaining starts of, no, I didn't want this kind. And I just stopped And I looked at the kids and I said, you know what? You guys don't even deserve this. And as I said it, I heard this voice inside my head say, and you don't either. And that is exactly what Easter is all about. And I just took a deep breath. And I realized, holy cow, yeah, Easter and our whole faith is all about how I, as an imperfect sinner, as a human being, do not deserve any of what Jesus did for me. And I think as parents, we will tell our kids in our not so great moments that they don't deserve the things that we're doing for them. Here I thought, man, I've really, along with my husband, been trying to show them a great time by taking them on this Disney World vacation and show them around to all these great parks and meet the characters and do all their favorite rides and get them a souvenir and blah, 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 and say things to them in my not so great moments like, you don't deserve this. And then to realize, yeah, yeah, that's totally what Jesus was thinking, (laughs) hanging there on the cross for all of us of they don't deserve it. And yet I'm going to do it because I love them this much. And I think I'm going to be chewing on that for the rest of this Easter season, if not for the rest of my life of Those moments when I act like the ungrateful kid on the Disney World vacation, whining about which donut I'm going to get before I head off to Magic Kingdom for the day. And to realize that I don't deserve Jesus's love, the love of the Father who gave me his son on the cross and allowed him to be resurrected so that I could have eternal life with him. No, I don't deserve any of it. And yet, He's still going to do all of that for me. And he would have done it all over again, even if it was just me. And that's a lot to take in. And maybe my kids didn't act like kids who were deserving of the things that they were getting that Easter Sunday morning. But I think I'm going to give them a little bit more grace. And we were able to do that. And after that moment, 
when I had that realization of what Easter really means, I took a deep breath and I, for the millionth time as a mom, had to ask them for forgiveness. And I apologized for blowing up at them. And I was so disappointed in myself for not even going a week without raising my voice at them after going to my general confession. But instead of just wallowing in that self-loathing and the guilt for doing that, I was able to say, okay, I screwed up big time. Jesus, please forgive me. Give me the grace I need to continue on with this trip and to show our kids, how much I love them and how this is not at all what today is supposed to be about and helped me, help me as their mother to show them your love today on Easter Sunday. And they forgave me and we did hugs and we were able to regroup and we went on to have a fabulous rest of our trip. And we didn't get home until Monday night. And it was, it was a great getaway. It was wonderful. We had a great trip to Disney World. And I think considering we have an eight, six, four and two year old, and they had never been on an airplane before for us to have no major hiccups and for everyone to still be smiling by the time we got home, I am calling that a major win. So Disney World was awesome. I don't think we're going to go back during Holy Week in the future, but we hope to go back someday, uh, maybe in a couple more years, but it was great. Today, I am sharing an interview I had with my friend, Wendy Clark. Wendy and I started exchanging comments on each other's blogs a couple years back, and then we had an opportunity to finally meet in person when we got to see each other at Adele in Charleston, South Carolina, back in, I guess that would have been 2015. Um, But it was so great to finally meet her, and we've kept in touch ever since, And today, uh, the conversation we had was about what it means to be unequally yoked in a relationship. And Wendy shared so beautifully about how she navigated those waters with her then college boyfriend, who eventually became her husband. And I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but she talks about where they are in their faith journey today. And I think you're going to be surprised by Wendy's advice that she shares at the end. Wendy has been married for 11 years, and she is a mother to five children, ages 1 to 11. She's originally from New Orleans, and her family is now residing in Houston, Texas. Wendy works outside the home, and she's the primary breadwinner for her family. She is very active in her parish. She teaches religious education, participates in ACTS retreats. She co-facilitates a Familia women's group and is also participating in the St. Anne Society. In 2014, she launched her awesome blog. I encourage you to check it out. It's called Pray, Work, Motherhood. And on that blog, she likes to share about the struggles and successes of navigating her rather unconventional life as a working mom. You don't see a lot of that in the Catholic mommy blogging world. And she also shares about her husband being a stay-at-home dad. Other than on the blog, you can find her chatting about Catholicism, children, coffee, and culture on Instagram. She has also contributed to the Blessed Is She blog and also the book Stations of the Cross, Meditations for Moms, available on Amazon. Wendy has quite the story, and I can't wait to share it with you. So without further ado, here is Wendy. Wendy. 
So we live in Houston, Texas, right outside of Houston. Um, I grew up originally in New Orleans, and uh, my family moved here when I was about 12, and met my husband in college, and we have been married for, we just celebrated our 11th anniversary in December. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, We have five children. Our oldest is 11, uh, and then it's, um, she's a girl, and then we have a nine-year-old girl a seven-year-old boy, a six-year-old girl, and a 19-month-old boy. So they run the gamut from one-year-old all the way up to 11. Um, We live, like I said, in Houston, and I work for an oil and gas engineering firm. And I work with uh, project controls, so I'm working on a engineering project right now. I'm not an engineer. I'm a words girl, not a numbers girl. You don't want me touching any kind of design or math at all. Um, (laughs) But I do help with reporting and um, editing reports and things of that nature. I'm I'm much more of the word-oriented side, not the number-oriented side. Uh, And so that's what I do. I've I've worked in a number of different industries over the years um, in healthcare and in education, and this is where I am now. And it's been about five years, and I'm loving it. I'm loving the growth and the challenge. Um, and I guess that's kind of me in a nutshell. I, you mentioned I have a blog and uh, started that a few years ago. And it's just been my way to kind of chronicle our uh, journey that we're on. So, And tell the listeners the name of the blog so that they can find it and start reading your posts. Sure. It's called um, Pray Work of Motherhood. And it's at CajunTexasMom.com. And it's, it's named Pray Work Motherhood because I uh, love the motto of St. Benedict, um, Ora et Labora, which is pray and work. And when I was trying to select a name for the blog, uh, since I knew I was going to be writing a lot about being a working mom, being a Catholic mom, and our faith life, I just thought that was a really good title. So that's what it is. I love it. And you are a very talented writer. And I loved getting to go through some of your older posts to prepare for our conversation for today. Um, For those of you who are just tuning in, who are not familiar with with Wendy's blog, I love that you bring to the table what I think is a really unique perspective, especially in the Catholic mommy blogging world, because you are not only a working mom, you are a full-time working mom, and you are the primary breadwinner for your family, correct? Yes, correct. And yeah, I th- and- I think that's an, a very underrepresented voice in the Catholic mommy world out there. For sure. There are a few of us out there, um, but we really are few and far between. And when I started the blog back in 2014, I did it because there weren't any. But I'll tell you, um, well, actually, there was one other one. But I'll tell you that um, there were, especially at the time, um, the mommy blog is is was filled mostly, of course, I'm sure as you know, with stay-at-home moms who are homeschooling their kids. or um, And that was awesome, and I love that lifestyle, and honestly, that's what I really wanted for myself. But I found that there was not a whole lot out there for somebody who found themselves in where I was in my state of life. And in part, I think that's because a lot of the moms that are Catholic, that are raising families, that are working outside the home, just don't have the time to, to set aside to do it. Mm-hmm. But... I kept hearing um, 
God asking me to do it, and I kept ignoring him, and it took several years for me to finally listen, because I was telling him I didn't have time, and he would be snarky and say, oh, but you have time to be on Facebook, and I'm like, Lord, that's not the point. The point is, I don't have time. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. So, so that's how <laughs> that's how that started, but yeah, I agree. It's, it's a huge swath, I think, of our, our um, faith experience that is not really being journaled. Um, and so I really like being a voice that contributes to that. I love that. And I love how you're able to not only embrace your role as primary breadwinner and the specific feminine genius that John Paul too liked to talk about that you bring to the table, not just in the professional world, but you equally, if not more, embrace the role that you have as wife and mother and what that looks like. And today I was hoping we could talk about your marriage and where things began and what it looks like for a Catholic faith-filled woman to be in a quote-unquote unequally yoked marriage. And we'll get to talk about what that means and what it looks like. But before we get there, let's go back in time. We're uh, back in your college days, and you were 20 years old when you met your husband. Is that right? I was, yes. Okay. So take us back to those days. You're 20 years old, you're in college, and you find yourself, this was your first serious relationship, right? First and only. First and only. Yeah. Um, So paint the picture. What's going on? Sure. So I went to community college uh, when I turned 19. I started in community college, and I commuted back and forth every day. We lived about 45 minutes away, and I lived with my parents still at home, and um I began classes. I had I was a homeschool grad, and so this was being back in a classroom setting. I hadn't been there since sixth grade, so it had been a hot minute since I'd set foot in the classroom, <laughs> and uh, on a daily basis had to interact not only with people but with boys. So that was a whole um, different experience to go to kind of fast forward from sixth grade boys to college boys. Ooh, in a lot of ways, they're different, and in a lot of ways, not so much. <laughs> um, but um, so there I was, and I had, uh, in my latter teen years, I had put on a, a significant amount of weight, and so I was, was overweight. I wasn't happy with my physical appearance. Um, I was kind of mad at God. I was a cradle Catholic, born and raised Catholic, and uh, like I mentioned, we homeschooled. I went Catholic school, then we homeschooled. I was really well-formed in the faith, but I was kind of mad at God during that time frame for who knows whatever kind of angsty teenage reasons. And um, and so I still went to Mass, but I was starting to kind of rationalize as I spread my wings away from my parents, um, even just, you know, during the day. I still went home to them at night, but uh, just kind of started to rationalize poor choices and sinful behavior. And I think everybody goes through some degree of that when you first leave home. Um, and for me, I think it really was catalyzed by um, the fact that I, like I said, I had really poor self-esteem and I wasn't happy with my appearance. And I met a guy who not only paid some attention to me, but it was actually fun to talk to. He was in the army. He had just gotten back from Iraq. Um, 
and he he was kind of shy, and so I took that as a challenge because I'm the world's I like to say I'm the world's extrovertious extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> and so I uh, I met him, and I thought he was a little withdrawn, and I said, "Okay, challenge accepted." Uh-huh. Um, and so we our, our friendship kind of grew, and uh, over a shorter. Uh, not that long a period of time, probably about six months, um, our friendship grew even more. And uh, we just eventually just kind of realized we really liked each other, like liked, liked each other. Mm -hmm. And as someone who struggled with body issues and self-esteem issues, um, I found myself starting to rationalize poor choices when it came to alone time with him and start to rationalize some of our differences. He was pro-choice at the time, uh, agnostic. He had been raised Christian, but not in a really solid home, really only went to church occasionally with grandma, and um, really didn't have a lot of formation, where I, on the other hand, felt like sometimes I was a walking catechism. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was interesting to see how my relationship with God was cooling and how easy it was to start to rationalize my choices in this area. When I was 12, I had made a list of all of the choices I, I wanted, or all of the things I wanted in what I thought was the ideal husband. And like at the top of the list was he has to be Catholic, and he has to be pro-life, and he has to agree to NFP. And here I was flirting with this guy who was not Catholic, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, was pro-choice, and had never heard of NFP. <laughs> Wow. So, um, and I was taking it seriously. I, I just, you know, one one poor decision after another led to um, us deciding we were going to start dating. And of course, I had to keep the whole thing secret from my parents because I knew they would never approve. So I started, on top of this probably ill-advised relationship, I started hiding things from them mm-hmm. uh, and not being open with them and. Uh, even recruiting my younger brother, who at that time had started to go to college too, recruiting him to keep quiet about it. Um, and just, you know, starting to really go down a not-so-great path. And he, my husband, um, well, not my now husband, my boyfriend at the time, had gotten accepted to a university, uh, and so he was going to need to transfer and he would be moving about two and a half hours from where we were going to school. And I kind of broke down and realized that, um, and up till then, we hadn't, we hadn't done anything um, that would jeopardize my virginity. But I knew things were headed that way, especially because of all the rationalization and the breakneck pace at which I was rationalizing things. Um, and when he got that acceptance letter, I panicked. And literally on the same day, made the decision to have sex with him for the first time. And it was a desperate attempt for him to hang on to me and not break up with me. Because I, was, I wasn't stupid. I realized that if he moved to a new town, it would be really easy for him to just find somebody who would, you know, do those things. And, um, and he had had that experience in the past where he had, and I certainly had not. And so uh, I just, it was like my last ditch effort. Don't dump me here. I'll give you this that I've protected with my entire life Mm -hmm. and that gift of myself. And 
you know, all these years later, I, I look back and I just want to, I want to get in a, in a time travel machine and smack myself. And it's funny because we've, my husband and I have discussed this too. He wants to too. He's like, I, I wish I could go back in time and beat myself up because <laughs> he said, I, you know, he said, I can't believe I ever put you in that position. Wow. Um, but, you know, things happen and life happens and we make bad choices and, and there I was and we had sex and we began having sex and I didn't take long. It was about, and what's really funny about that time frame too is I made that decision and for some reason, and I, I, I think it had a lot to do with the way I was raised and how staunchly pro-life I was and how well I believe it or not, understood at least the contraception teaching of the Catholic Church, I couldn't rationalize any type of barrier method or contraception. I looked into possibly getting an IUD or getting depo, and I, I looked at all of those options, and I looked at all of the side effects, and I kept coming back to, I don't want to put any of that into my body, and I just don't think I can, like, rationalize that. So... I found I found it interesting. Even then, I saw that dichotomy. Whereas, okay, well, I can totally, I can apparently rationalize premarital sex, but not so much contraception. Wow, I know it's so weird to me now, but that's how my brain was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we didn't use any type of prevention other than um, really just hoping that nothing would happen. Which, in hindsight. Yeah, not so bright. Um, <laughs> so it's not really shocking um, that after about six months, I had a positive pregnancy test. Um, and I can say that in that moment, looking at that test, I, I think I felt what almost every woman that's ever seen it, planned pregnancy or not, has felt. All time stops, right? The world just stops, and you realize, oh, this is going to happen. Yeah. And when I took the test by that point, yeah, I was 20 years old, and it was it was four days before Christmas. And I remembered thinking, I can't tell my parents till after Christmas. I can't ruin their Christmas. Mm. (laughs) Um, But I stood there in my bathroom staring at this pregnancy test. And Catherine, you know, for all of my pro-life work up to that point, for all of my convictions about when life begins, um, I was actually supposed to be starting school in another town. I was transferring as well to a different town. Uh, in a mere four weeks from the time I took that test. And one of the first thoughts I had was, you know, you could just schedule an appointment when you get to your new town. Mm. And your boyfriend could just come up and take care of you for a few days. And your parents really don't have to know about this. Mm -hmm. because It would be really easy to just take care of this problem. And that petrified me because never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined that that would have even crossed my mind. And then almost as suddenly, thankfully, a kinder, softer voice said, are you kidding? This is a baby. You love babies. You love kids. 
this is going to be a baby, but this isn't a baby you have to give back at the end of the night and drive home <laughs> like a babysitting job. This is a baby who's going to actually call you mom. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful baby. And you can't do that. You already made your decision about whether or not you wanted to be a mom. And now guess what? It's here. And uh, once, once that thought crossed my mind, you know, I never really looked back. Um, it was thankfully that option was off the table. Um, but it gave me such an empathy moving forward for women who are in that situation because I would have put myself as the very last person on this planet to even contemplate um, having an abortion, and yet there I was, and that thought crossed my mind. So that struggle is a real struggle. Yeah. And you know what, Wendy? I'm glad you said that. As you were talking it made me think back to my own first positive pregnancy test. And I was in a very different situation. At that point, I was married, we had been married for over a year, but my husband was in medical school, and I was teaching. So we were rolling in the dough. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yet we were open to life and we planned and we said, yes, we're ready for this. And then we were blessed to have this positive pregnancy test. And as I look at the results and Philip and I are crying and we're excited and it's awesome, I realize I'm going to have to tell my parents. And I think that they're probably going to think that we're in over our heads and that we are not ready for what this is going to mean. And that same voice that you heard when you saw your positive pregnancy test, I heard it too. And I also considered myself uber pro-life. I had just chaperoned the March for Life with my own students and (laughs) was in the same camp you were. And yet I still heard that voice as well. And that experience gave me that empathy that you're talking about for these young women that find themselves in a totally different situation than I was as a married woman in a committed monogamous relationship to a Catholic man who was totally on board. (laughs) And we were doing NFP to achieve the pregnancy. So I get it that where that voice comes from, it's we know who it is, who's giving us that message. So back to you and your story. So you're 20 years old, you find yourself positive pregnancy test. So then did you share the news with your boyfriend before you shared it with your parents? What was the sequence of events from there? <laughs> I grabbed my cell phone I because I had just gotten it. This was back in the days of the, the brick cell phones. And I grabbed mine and I, I went straight from the bathroom uh, to my front yard because in a house with five siblings, that's the only place you can talk privately. Uh-huh. And <laughs> and I called him and I said, we have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he got really quiet and he said, oh, and I said, yeah. And I told him that we were going to have a baby, not I. I mm-hmm. said, we are going to have a baby. And he was really silent for a long time uh, until I was finally kind of pulling up Ben Stein and saying, Bueller, Bueller, mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. you there? And he, um, he was pro-choice and one of his, I, I knew what one of his comments might be. I was hoping he wouldn't say it, but I wanted to take it off the table. And so what I said was, and just so you know, 
my choices are I will raise the baby or I will give the baby up for adoption and no other choices exist. Mm -hmm. And I remember him saying, why not? And I said, because it is not this child's fault that you and I sinned. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to deny this child their right to life because of a mistake that you and I made. And he got very quiet again, and he said, okay. And neither of us ever brought it up again. Wow. Um, Which, that in that moment, just the fact that he, as a pro-choice person, just let that go, um, told me even then, in the midst of the darkness we were in, he did at least, at the very least, respect what I believed. Um, even if, obviously, it was going to mean a lot of trouble for him. <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously, um, he did at least respect me and love me enough to know that, okay, if she says it's not an option, it's not an option. Can I ask you a really pointed question? Go for it. Okay, so <laughs> before you get to this positive pregnancy test, you, the two of you, have decided to move forward and have a sexual relationship and as you already explained, because of your beliefs being raised Catholic, you were not interested in using contraception. And so obviously, he knows that that's what's going on as well. Had the two of you ever had the conversation, what if we do get pregnant? Or was it just this big elephant in the room every time you were together that this is a possibility every time? I think I was much more educated on the potential repercussions, as it were, Um, I'll be completely frank and tell you that the method that we used of birth control was essentially withdrawal. Yeah. And he was was convinced that that was going to be foolproof, and I was less so convinced. And so there had been a couple of conversations in the interim about... We had actually even talked about potentially getting married, which is hilarious because I had already told everyone I knew, don't worry, I'm not going to marry this guy. He's not even Catholic, <laughs> um, <laughs> which in retrospect, people still tease me about. But anyway, um, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Um, I guess it was kind of like I wanted so badly to believe him that mm-hmm. withdrawal was this fabulous birth control method that I just kind of... It was more of an elephant in the room in that sense, okay. um, that it seemed so far outside of the realm of possibility that um, it really wasn't anything to discuss. And we were already kind of talking about getting married anyway, but I think a huge part of that was my self-esteem, too. Mm. I didn't see how any other guy on this planet could possibly love a girl who was insanely overweight and was Catholic and had all these strange religious rules. Like, that's how jacked up my <laughs> perception of <laughs> the entire male population was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, no, we hadn't really discussed, hey, what happens if sex, which is designed for babies, actually makes a baby? Right. Um, you know, we, we had the unitive thing down, um, but not so much the procreative. And uh-huh. so we hadn't really talked about it. In the back of my mind, I think I just thought, uh, if it happened, I knew I was pro-life, and I would raise the baby, and we would figure things out. I think that was kind of what my 
de facto thought process was, but it wasn't necessarily anything we discussed out loud, which was in retrospect, not so bright, but you know, that whole time frame, none of that, none of that was so bright. <laughs> so you have a positive pregnancy test. You've told your boyfriend that you're pregnant and you've already laid out on the table what the options are, which are, I am going to have this baby and parent this child, or I'm going to place this child for adoption. Take us from there. What's really funny about that is that deep down, I don't, I knew even then I don't, I didn't think I could give the baby up, but I wanted him to feel like there might be another option. (laughs) Um, Because in my heart of hearts, I'm the oldest of six kids. And I knew that I, I knew that someone that was flesh of my flesh, I just wasn't going to be able to give up. I just knew it. I didn't know how the heck I was going to make it work, but I knew that I, I couldn't. And I admire so much moms who have been able to be courageous and be brave and knowing that they're choosing a better life for their child, um, make that choice. So, and I admire adoptive parents um, for, for doing that because I just think it's such a beautiful thing. Um, but moving from that point, we started talking much more seriously about marriage. I was very cognizant of, you know, the idea of the shotgun wedding and just throwing together something and rushing into marriage because it was the next right thing to do once you find yourself, you know, expecting a baby. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I knew enough to know that I didn't want that to be the solution to the problem, that making one poor choice um, didn't necessitate another poor choice that would have much greater implications as far as I was concerned. Um, and most of the people around me, you know, echoed that and said, don't rush into this just because you, you're pregnant. Um, you still really need to give some serious thought about, is this the person you want to father? You know, be the, be the father, be your husband and be the father of the baby. Is that um, what your parents were saying at the time? Their big thing was just don't rush into anything. Okay. Uh, they didn't necessarily vo- vocalize the other parts of that. Other people did. I had one family member who had had a crisis pregnancy herself, who was actually my confirmation sponsor, who was pretty much the lone voice telling me, you see enough good in this person to have gone into a relationship with him, even under the not, you know, not the most ideal circumstances. And you see enough there to where, on some level, you know, you saw good things in him. You just have to take a step back and say, is this, are these things enough to be a, a good father and a good husband? Mm-hmm. And that, that really kind of shifted it for me because um, even though she was really the only one that said that, you know, it reminded me kind of like, and this is going to sound strange in 2018, but it reminded me of arranged marriages in the past, you know, and saints we read about who married, you know, people for kingdoms, and they had everything set up for them, but they still became saints and were sanctified through their marriages, even though they didn't marry necessarily for love. And so I took a step back and really thought about that. I did love this man. Um, it, It wasn't an arranged marriage, you know, but could I learn to love him as a husband? Could I entrust him with that role for myself and with the role of a full-time dad for my child. Um, And so that's kind of how I had to start framing that question. Mm -hmm. Because 
realistically, if we were going to make that decision to move forward, I preferred it to be sooner rather than later. And if we weren't going to, then I owed it to him, and I, I think I owed it to the baby to break up with him as soon as possible because I didn't, I didn't want there to, not that he wouldn't have been allowed to see her or be her father, but I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to start her life in that way with someone who I knew ultimately wasn't going to be my husband. And so, um, love became like a very real choice for you at that point. Extremely, extremely real. And, and I felt like there was, I, as much as everybody told me there was no time limit on it, I felt differently. Hmm. Um, when I approached the deacon, um, that is really close to our family to kind of bounce the ideas off of him. You know, the one thing he said was, don't do this just because he's the dad. Mm. I won't marry, I won't marry you two if that's the only reason you're doing this. So you really need to think about this. And I appreciated that. Yeah. Um, and so really what it ultimately came down to is, first of all, when you find yourself in that position, you kind of realize, um, or at least I did, that Maybe I ought to get right with God because <laughs> there's no way I'm going to get through these next nine months and everything that's to come after it if I don't start talking to him again. And and really, the pregnancy was, that positive test was my call back to him. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't go to confession right away because I was horribly ashamed um, and I didn't think I was really worthy of that yet, um, so it was a while before I went to confession. But I did start paying more attention in Mass. I did start to try to uh, have more prayer time with God. And basically, I felt strongly convicted of two things. One, that I eventually realized that Lee was certainly someone that I could see myself with for the rest of my life. And like I had mentioned, we had talked briefly about marriage before, so it wasn't a completely foreign idea. But two things. One, I decided and felt very strongly convicted that we needed to be married sacramentally or married in the church, and and not just a civil marriage. And two, that we needed to baptize the baby. Those were non-negotiables for me. And in probably one of the hardest conversations of my life, I told my boyfriend, this is how it's going to be. You know, I've made a lot of concessions for you and a lot of concessions that I should never have made, but really there's no going back to that now. What matters is going forward, and I'm responsible, you know, for what happens going forward. So I want to be married in the church, and I want to raise my children Catholic, which means baptizing them and raising them in the faith. And essentially, I told him, if you can't get on board with that, then we need to part ways. And Catherine, I hung up the phone, and I was shaking, and I told him, don't call me back until you have an answer. Dang! Cajun Texas mom does not mess. (laughs) I threw it down, and I knew that, and I'm not like that. I am really not, but, but it took every ounce of strength to do that. And I knew I had to do it that way because if I didn't, I was always going to question, you know, did I, did I cushion the blow too much? Did mm-hmm. I, did I not make myself clear enough? So, so you just put it out go. there and you hung up the phone. I pretty much, I said, you can call me when you decide. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Take us from there. What happened? Well, I got in my car and I drove to adoration is what happened. And I sat there and I cried and I just sobbed. And I said, Jesus, I'm going to need you. 
to either break open his heart enough to agree to this or give me every grace you've got to walk away because it's going to take everything you can give me to, to have the strength to walk away from this. Wow. Um, because I was already so intertwined with this man, you know, mm-hmm. sex rewires your brains. And I was, I was completely united to him in spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going to be so hard to walk away from that. And so I drove back to my, I stayed there for hours, drove back to my apartment, um, went to bed Got up the next day, and about 24 hours after <laughs> after the ultimatum, um, he called me, and he said, so I've been thinking about what you said. Actually, I think my original, the original thing I said when I answered the phone was, do you have an answer yet? Because I was like, no, seriously, I'm not talking to you until you get this straight. And he said, well, I've been thinking about what you said, and I've decided you were raised Catholic, and you turned out pretty good, so... <laughs> So I can be okay with our kids being Catholic. And I said, and my heart just stopped. And I was like, what? Whoa. And and he said, and um, I'd rather not get married in a church. I'd much rather just go to a judge and be done with it. But if it's important to you, I'll do it. Wow. I almost dropped the, I was doing dishes because I just knew what his answer was going to be. And I was ready to like start throwing things. And (laughs) and he was like, he just blew my mind. And I hurried up and got him off the phone because I, of course, burst into tears. And I just started thanking God when I could not believe what had just happened. Mm -hmm. So then how soon after that did you get married? Uh, we got engaged about three months, three or four months after. No, that's a lie. We got engaged about five months after that, and then we were married six months after that. Literally six months to the day from the proposal to the wedding date, and that was because that was the soonest that our church would do it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and and in the meantime, in the interim, I had the baby. Um, he proposed to me in June. Our oldest child was born in September, and we got married in December. Okay. I'm just piecing together that timeline in my head. Sure. What a whirlwind that was for you. Indeed. And then you're looking at this beautiful baby that is the fruit of your relationship and now marriage, and you enter into marriage at this point, and we've already used the phrase unequally yoked. In those early years of marriage, first of all, what does it mean to be unequally yoked? Can you explain that for those who maybe aren't familiar with the scripture verse that that phrase comes from? Sure. So really, it refers to any kind of union that the spouses are not on the same spiritual page. Um, if you think of a of an oxen, you know, or if an oxen team, they have to be yoked with even weight and with even um, distribution so that they can work the most efficiently in in tandem together. If if you and your spouse are on two different spiritual pages, um, the believing community typically refers that to to being unequally yoked because you're not of the same mind when it comes to the end goals of your marriage, even though you think you may be. Um, We all know as Catholics, you know, we know as Christians that our number one goal in life is to get to heaven. And because of that, 
the main goal of marriage is to help your spouse get to heaven. And if you're not both on the same page at getting each other to heaven, you automatically are set up for dysfunction because mm-hmm. you're not, you don't have the same goals going into it. Yeah, that's a beautiful explanation. So you are married, you have this beautiful baby girl, and your husband is still in the service at this point. And it was shortly thereafter that he had to go overseas, correct? Yes, we had been married for 11 months when we found out he was going to be going back overseas. So I met him, he had been back from Iraq for about four months. Um, and then about a year and a half passed, and we found out he was going to have to go. And this time he was going to Afghanistan. Wow. And then it was just a couple of days after he left that you received some exciting news, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, That's when I learned the fun NFP lesson that if you're stressed, you can have a double peak ovulation and you shouldn't just assume that that third temperature would happen that day because Uh it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily. And as it turns out, your body can fail to ovulate and then you stop temping. But strangely, strangely, (laughs) since you haven't ovulated, you can indeed get pregnant. Shockingly. Yeah. So, so yeah, he had been gone a whopping two weeks when I, when I stared at my second, unexpected pregnancy test that was positive. Uh-huh. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, and I said this to God, I said, God, this is not how this was supposed to go down. This was supposed to be a happy experience this time. I didn't mm-hmm. get it last time. We were going to have a good experience on baby number two. And God just laughed at me. Um, <laughs> as he often does. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, so there I was um, with at that point, a um, roughly 18-month-old and a, a positive pregnancy test and a husband that went overseas. And I had had what I am firmly convinced at this point, the more that I know about it, um, I had had undiagnosed HG with my first pregnancy. Can you tell um, everyone what I, that means? Um, it's hyperemesis gravidorum. It's a, you, you've probably heard it. In, in the media, I think it's getting a little bit more attention because Princess Kate has had it with all three of her pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really morning sickness on steroids. It's it's debilitating. I, I for the first six months of my first pregnancy, wasn't able to eat anything at all except Jello and Sprite. And I used to joke that it was because it, the only reason I ate that was because it was the only thing that wasn't terrible coming back up, like mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. And um, and I lost somewhere around 40 pounds that first pregnancy, and um, it was pretty rough, and I was in school, and um, I think I think my doctor may have missed it just because I, w- I had a crisis pregnancy, and he knew that, and he knew that I was under a lot of stress. Yeah. Um, but I had the same type of pregnancy with baby number two, and I lost another 35, 40 pounds, um, couldn't eat. Luckily... My appetite started to return somewhere around 22 weeks that time. So that was a little more doable. Um, but, you know, when you have an 18 month old and then you, you're working, you have a full time job and you have HG. And your husband is across the ocean. And your husband's deployed. Yeah. Um, 
it's a little challenging, especially when you're in a marriage that you can't count on sacramental grace to help you. Because mm-hmm. even though we had gotten married in the church, my husband at the time was not even a baptized Christian. So we had um, even more of a challenge. It's, it's re- the catechism calls it disparity of cult. And it's when a Christian marries an unbaptized Christian or you know, a pagan, which I tend to joke around with him that that's what he was, a pagan. Um, but realistically... Define the term have. for everyone who just hears that word in pop culture. What does pagan mean in the truest really, sense of the word? It's basically an unbaptized person. Yeah. It's someone who, you know, doesn't have any, really any inkling of God um, in terms of their relationship with him. There's no desire to be baptized. It's just you're just there. Yeah. Um, and so that's what he was, an unbaptized Christian. In fact, in the, in, in earlier, the earlier parts of the 20th century, um, marriages were so discouraged by the church of being disparity of, of having that disparity of cult that you were actually denied um, a, a wedding in the actual church, in the sanctuary. I, I have a family friend who had to be married in the rectory of their church because they weren't even allowed to be married inside the church building mm-hmm. um, because it was considered such a bad idea. You know, yeah. it's not that it was really forbidden. It's just it was so heavily discouraged. Um, so I think as our culture has become more and more godless, unfortunately, I think there have been concessions made. Um, and and I'm glad, in a sense, because it meant that I got to marry my husband. But um, certainly see where that you know, where that came about and why the church was so discouraging of those types of unions at the time. Um, So So if we could paint in broad strokes, I want to make sure we get to these other questions that I really want us to focus in on. But if you could sum up in a paragraph or two, how you would describe those first couple of years of marriage and the unique challenges that you faced, not only as the breadwinner, but as the believer and the unique challenges that maybe you weren't anticipating, how would you sum up what those first couple of years were like? Sure. Uh, in a word, they were super challenging. I guess that's two words. Um, <laughs> hey, um, in terms of being the breadwinner, that was challenging enough. When my husband got back from Afghanistan, he had hard time finding employment because as an Army veteran with his particular background, didn't really trans- translate very well to the civilian life. And so... I remained the breadwinner, and that was something I never wanted to be. I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and homeschool my kids. Like, that was my life goal. Um, I did want to be a nurse, too, but I wanted to I wanted to finish nursing school so that I could just work a couple days a month and kind of supplement my family's income, not be the main income. Mm-hmm. And so that was a role that I never anticipated or wanted and was very unhappy with. Um in addition to that, you know, being un- unequally yoked as we were, um, we had the faith challenges. And it's funny because you would think that getting my wish to marry in the church and getting my wish to raise our kids Catholic, I would have jumped right back into the faith, but that's not really what happened. Um, as it turns out, I, I found myself resentful that my husband wasn't Catholic, and I rationalized not going to Mass because I wanted to go to Mass as a family, and I wanted him to see how beautiful the faith was, and he couldn't see how beautiful it was if he didn't go to Mass. And so if he wasn't going to go to Mass, I wasn't going to go to Mass. I, 
I don't really know why that line of reasoning made sense to me at the time, but <laughs> because in retrospect, not so much. Um, mm-hmm. But so we didn't, I, I didn't go to mass very often. I, I went occasionally. I didn't go very often. Um, I, I prayed and I was, we were following NFP. Um, once he started to understand um, how it worked, he was all for it, especially because he was not a fan of me putting chemicals into my body. So that wasn't really a hard sell, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, we, we struggle sometimes more now with it um, for other reasons. But at the time, it, was, um, it wasn't really a huge stumbling block for us. Um, and our finances were crazy tight. Military, I don't know if you know this, it's not a secret, but, you know, the military doesn't get paid very well. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, between that and the fact that at the time, you know, I, I had a job that paid barely more than a minimum wage, um, even as the breadwinner, you know, it was a lot of stress. It was a lot of financial, um, much more so, I think, than, than a lot of people, a lot of financial stress. And I feel that everything was compounded by the lack of grace that we had over our marriage because our marriage was not um, sacramental. We didn't have those graces from a sacramental marriage to help us through some of these really tough things. One of the things that military members struggle so much with when they come back from a deployment is reintegration. Um, The deployment's hard enough as it is, but coming back is really challenging. And we went through the roughest 18 months of our marriage after he returned because we grew, but we didn't grow together. We grew separately. Mm-hmm. And we had to relearn everything about each other. And spoiler, we weren't the same people we were when we separated. And so it was like learning to love each other all over again and learning how to cooperate again. And I do want to mention this short thing that happened while he was on deployment because it's hilarious. Um, our cardinal, Cardinal Donardo, um, he's the Archbishop of Galveston, Houston, went to my parents' church during the time when my husband was deployed to bless the church. It was the parish's 50th anniversary. And there was a dinner afterwards, and I went up to him, and I said, I introduced myself, and I said, I need you to pray for my husband. And he looked at me, and he said, okay. I said, he is in the Army, he's in Afghanistan, and he's not baptized, and I live in fear that he's going to die not baptized, and it's going to haunt me the rest of my life, and I don't want him to die without the grace of baptism. And he looked at me, and he said, I promise you I will pray for him. Wow. And I knew he would, and it's so funny because my husband at the time was a driver for the general that he was working with, and so being a driver... And being out on the roads, obviously, it's pretty dangerous. You never know what kind of uh, things might be on the roadside. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was asking my, my, the cardinal to pray for my husband. Um, within a week, he was inexplicably, and for seemingly no reason, reassigned to guard duty in a shack. And it was 12 hours of basically watching the paint peel and he was bored out of his skull. And, and you were he, saying, praise you, Jesus. <laughs> I was. I was. And that's where he stayed the rest of the deployment. And we still look back on that and laugh because it's the most hilarious thing. Um, and I, I don't doubt for a second that I have Carno Donardo to thank for that. <laughs> oh, I love that. 
Wendy, I'm so glad you went into detail on what that reintegration time looks like and painting that picture for those of us who don't have experience with military life, being a military spouse, and what that real sacrifice looks like. And behalf of on behalf of all the listeners of this program, I just want to say thank you to your family for your sacrifice and for Lee's service, because I know it doesn't come without a price. So thank you for giving of yourselves so fully for our country. Well, I think that just like any other military family would say, you know, it's an honor to be able to serve our country in that way. And, um, you know, and because I'm Catholic, we, we offered it up for sanctification of souls. So it's, it's all good. <laughs> well, as the listeners are going to hear, there were graces happening in this time. And I really want you to speak to when your third child was born. You wrote about this on your blog. You talked about this epiphany moment that you had that started to shift things for you with how you viewed not just your relationship with God, but how your husband, Lee, must view your relationship with God and how that affects him. Can you speak to that? Sure. I just, um, I started to realize that at this point I had kind of started, I had actually started going to Mass again. Um, I've started doing that towards the end of Lee's deployment because I was just so afraid for him. And I really went to Mass to pray for his soul, and I offered up the Mass for his soul. That's really what got me back in the door of the church. Um, at that time, we had a new priest assigned to our parish, and he and I was new to the parish. And um, he was a, he's, a, he's still there, and he's a phenomenal priest. Um, and because he's a phenomenal priest and gives excellent homilies and is very invested in young families and nurturing the faith and kind of challenging the faith of those of us who have been in the pews for a long time. He had very thought-provoking homilies, and I loved to read his bulletin letters, letters in the bulletin. And I would I would share those with Lee from time to time, like, hey, look what Father Troy wrote about, and he would read them, and it was like my sneaky evangelization. Mm-hmm. But during that time, <laughs> during that time, um, God really started to impress upon my heart that there was no way that my husband would ever fall in love with my faith if I wasn't in love with it first. And Say that again. (laughs) Yeah. Really, Lee would never be able to fall in love with God and fall in love with Jesus if he wasn't seeing me in love with Jesus on a daily basis. Yeah. And I can honestly say that up to that point, my life really hadn't reflected that, at least not at any point in our relationship. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and at the same time, you know, I con- had the concurrent realization that regardless of what the outcome was of his conversion, which I had wanted, um, at the end of the day, I still was responsible for my own salvation, and I hadn't been doing a very good job of nurturing that um, desire for sainthood or doing a whole lot to journey to sainthood. I was really stagnant. It's like I had pulled over on the side of the road and sat there for years, just idling my engine. And it was time to get some gas and get back on the highway. And so what that looked like for me was diving into the sacraments, because I know that they're the key to grace, and grace is how we, that's how we become holy. And um, there are gifts. There are the gifts that Jesus gave us to become holy. So the sacraments that I really kind of dove into were, were the Eucharist and confession. 
and I started to make confession more of a habit. Um, and as those things started to happen, and as I started to make those a priority, I noticed that I had a desire to pray more and to be more intentional about my prayer. And so all of this kind of, it was like a cycle, and it all kind of fed off of each other. You know, graces tend to do that. Mm-hmm. And I started praying the Chaplet of Divine Mercy for my husband on my commute to and from work every single day. Now, up to that time, if you asked me if I prayed for, for my husband's conversion, I would say, of course I do. And I, and I did, occasionally when I thought about it. And I will say that I did offer up the pain of the, every childbirth that I had gone through at that point, which was three, um, for his conversion. Yeah, that counts. Do- <laughs> I, I like to joke that it took four kids, four childbirths, to get him to, <laughs> to come to Jesus. Lee, um, that is no joke. <laughs> come on, man. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a running joke. So, um, But I, I began to pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, and my prayer for him, in addition to the chaplet, was, you know, Lord... Send your Holy Spirit to knock down the walls that are around his heart. Mm. Open his eyes to see. Open his ears to listen. Open his heart to be open. And really, he had. we had talked a few times about other things, not necessarily about the church, but about other things. And he had um, expressed that he knew that there were a lot of walls that he had built up around his heart. And so I just had this, this image of a fortress and like a castle around his heart. And it was going to be the only thing that was going to be able to knock those walls down was the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so that's really where my prayer started to turn was begging the Holy Spirit to start putting chinks in that armor and start tearing down those, those walls brick by brick. And the other part of my earnest prayer was don't let him convert. Don't let him feel called to conversion unless it's going to stick. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't think of anything more devastating for me personally and what what my perception of that was than for him to convert and then in a few years grow cold. Um, yeah. I wanted him to, when he, if it t- even if it took a while for that burn to start, even if it had to be a slow burn for a while, I wanted it to be something that would never go out. And so that was the other part of my prayer was, you know, don't let this happen unless it's, it's going to be for good. Um, you said that he started to notice a shift in you around yes. this time. So what kind of remarks was he making that showed you that he noticed there were some changes <laughs> happening there? He he would say things. If he noticed that, uh, you know, I came home from work more agitated than usual and it began to be a pattern. I was coming home a lot really agitated or if I I would pick fights for no seemingly no reason or, you know, I would just be in general frustrated. He would just stop and look at me and Um, having seen how I was, you know, coming back from confession and how that always put me in an amazing mood, he would, he would just look at me and say, when's the last time you went to confession? (laughs) Dang. I know. I'm like, dude, you don't know my life? Go away. (laughs) Um, But as it turns out, he was always right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there there were... They were even a few times. He was like, I'll watch the baby. You just go to church. (laughs) (laughs) Go run to Jesus because you clearly need him right now. I need you to not talk to me. Um, So (laughs) 
But you know what? That was actually really awesome because yeah. it showed me that he really was starting to see these things. Mm-hmm. And I kept doing things like giving him the bulletin and saying, here, read this letter. And, uh, or I'd come across a pro-life article online and say, hey, listen to this paragraph. Mm-hmm. And it would be something about the sanctity of life. And I was always very careful uh, throughout the course of our relationship. And I think he would, he would agree with this, but I was never one to beat him over the head with anything. I never begged him. I never asked him to convert. Never. Mm-hmm. I never, um, it was not something that I harped on. I, in fact, I feel like I actually, and it may have even hindered his conversion by a year or two. I feel like there were times I actively went out of my way to not bring it up mm. because I did not, I also didn't want him to convert just because I nagged him to death. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to turn him off to it because it's all I ever talked about. So I think in a lot of ways, I actually kind of suppressed my own evangelization efforts because, you know, I was wanting to make sure I didn't come on too strong. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, because I'm sure we have some listeners who are feeling unequally yoked in their marriage. I wanted to hear what advice you have for the wife out there who's listening, and she's trying to lead in loving God. How would you advise her to do that? Focus on your own relationship with Jesus. Focus on growing closer to Him. Pray for your husband. You can fast for your husband. Praying, fasting, you know, our Lord says in the Gospels, those those are mighty ways to um, to have answered prayer. But focus on your relationship with Jesus, because even if your spouse ends up not converting, you will still be closer to Jesus at the end of the day. And your sanctification, um, you know, that's all still happening. That's all still going. That's all still going on. And the graces that you'll receive to bear that disappointment of of not converting um, are going to come as you cultivate that relationship with Jesus. And listen, get yourself a medal of St. Monica or a little tiny saint keychain or a holy card in your window or whatever you need to do. Make St. Monica your home girl because she prayed for her son and her husband for a total of 30 years. I always joke with her, I'm like, can we just, like, not have it be 30 years? Can we, like, have a significantly less number of years? I mean, I'll wait 30 if that's what it takes, but, because um, it all turned out pretty well for her. Her her son became one of the most well-known philosophers of all time, and, you know, doctor of the church. So, I mean, I guess it worked out, but I really didn't want quite that timeline. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, work on your relationship with Jesus. Talk to St. Monica. Um and just know that everything is going to happen when it's supposed to happen. Don't rush it. Somebody said to me one time, God, we, we have a tendency to want to rush God, but God, God cooks in the crock pot. You know, we would prefer that he cook in the microwave, but he works on crock pot time. So mm-hmm. trust the crock pot. Trust the process. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is beautiful advice. And it must have been very difficult for you at times to trust in that slow, steady burn that God loves to work with. Because you you were working, you had your plan, you were ready for your husband to get on board. But God knew what was best, not just for Lee, or for you, but for your marriage and for your family.
Well, I love your advice to the wives out there who are trying to lead in loving God. And so things are moving forward here. And you had the shift within your relationship with God where you start leading and working on your own relationship with God. So fast forward a couple of years. It's the fall 2012. What happens? What does Lee announce? In a very stunning turn of events. Um, <laughs> I had I had actually invited him to go to an RCIA informational meeting um, the year before, in 2011, when we were expecting our fourth child. And he, you know, I told him, I said, just go and find out what it's about. And you, it doesn't mean you have to become Catholic. You're not signing on the dotted line. But just, you know, we're raising these four kids. And at, at this point, um, in 2011, our oldest was already five. And I knew she'd be receiving her sacraments in, in a couple of years. And so I told him, I said, don't you want to know what I'm teaching them? Like, wouldn't you like to know the background? Um, my husband loves history. And so I'll admit that there was a little bit of a little bit of scheming there because I knew once he started to hear some of the history of the church, it was going to all be over with because he's just, he, that's just who he is. He's, he can't get enough of that kind of stuff. And so. You knew what um, you were doing. I kind of did. I was a little subversive. <laughs> It's fine. It was holy subversion. I'm totally, I'm sure God was totally cool with it. Sure. Um, but he, he, he acted like he thought about it, but he kind of turned it down. Well, roughly the same time frame, my best friend who had been dating um, and then subsequently was getting married to um, her now husband, he started going through RCIA. Mm. And um, I remember the day that she called me all excited and said, he has decided to join the church. And we just laughed and we cried and we giggled like schoolgirls. And I hung up the phone and Lee said, what was that about? <laughs> and I said, Chase is joining the church. And he just looked at me and he looked defeated. And he was like, oh. oh. And he said, well, one thing I will say is that I've pretty much decided that if I ever were to become a Christian, I think the only thing I could be is Catholic, because it's just so obvious that you have apostolic succession, and it's obvious it's the one true church. Whoa, Lee. And I was like, but okay, okay, but remember, I'm trying not to, like, I'm so you're playing to it cool. my emotions. <laughs> and so I'm like, wow, yeah, I mean, obviously. Mm-hmm. And like... Inwardly, I like ran in my closet and screamed into my clothes because it would muffle the sound because I'm like, it's just happening. Um, wow. Yeah. So then another year went by and it was the fall again. And we saw in the bulletin um, at this point, he really wasn't he had never really gone to church with us other than Christmas and Easter sometimes. Mm. Um, he was all too willing to say, I'll just stay home with the toddler. Sure. Which I wasn't necessarily, I mean, I, I invited him from time to time, but I was also not stupid, and I had several children at that point, and I was like, oh, you're going to keep the noisy kid? Done. Yeah. Um, so he hadn't really gone to Mass with us much yet, but I came home with a bulletin one day, and I said, hey, they're doing another one of those RCIA informational meetings. Are you sure you don't want to go and just see what it's about? Because at this point, our daughter um, was in first grade, and... Um, or actually, she was starting kindergarten, and he said, okay, and I knew she was going to be starting religious education, and so I said, you know, you can go to RCIA, she can start CCE, you guys can be on this journey together, again, with the subversion. And he said, okay, I'll go and just see what it's about. 
And I said, okay, let's go. And so um, I got a sitter, which was not hard to find because I called my mother jubilantly and said, mom, <laughs> I need you to babysit on X day because we are going to the RCIA meeting. And she's like, done. So... <laughs> There is no more secure sitter than the Catholic mother-in-law who has a son-in-law going to RCIA. True story. She's like, do you want money to go to dinner beforehand? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Nice. So um, we went to the meeting, and uh, it was really just kind of an overview of what RCIA entailed. Can you explain Um, to the listeners what RCIA stands for and what it is? Sure. And I would love to because... At that time, I really only had a, I had very little knowledge about RCIA. RCIA stands for the Right of Christian Initiation of Adults. And basically what it is, is an introductory period where you learn what the church is, how it's structured, what we believe on a very broad, broad level. Um, and then you go through certain phases where you're basically journeying towards the sacraments of initiation. And the whole program is modeled after the early days of the church and how new members were welcomed into the church at the time. Um, and so the right, of the, the right of the elect happens um, at the beginning of Lent, and um, there's different phases that you go through to kind of journey towards, and at any time you can decide, you know what, this really isn't for me. But if you decide to keep moving forward, everything culminates, um, at at least in our parish and in most parishes, with the sacraments of initiation at the Easter Vigil Mass on Holy Saturday. And if you have never been to the Easter, uh, to the Tritium services on, on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, I encourage you to do that. I, I was a cradle Catholic and had never done it until my husband went through RCIA. Well, actually, until the year before, until Chase joined the church. Mm. Um, and I had never been through all those liturgies before. And I'll warn you, if you've never done it, they're all extremely long, so just know that. Um, but, oh my word, if it's not my favorite part of the liturgical year. Amen. Those days are just soul-stirring for me on so many levels. And the Easter Vigil Mass in particular, I have goosebumps right now just thinking about it. Going from the blessing of the fire and then processing into a dark church and the candlelight and and slowly bringing up the lights as we celebrate that glorious Alleluia after being absent for so long from the liturgy and then welcoming these new Catholics into the faith and being confirmed, and the baptisms, and the first communions. It is one of the most, it is the, hands down, the most joyous mass of the entire liturgical year. And Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing. Um, So if you've never done that, I strongly encourage you to do that. Um, So we went to this first RCIA meeting, and they just kind of gave an an overview of when they were going to be meeting and what they would be discussing. And we came home, and he decided he was going to go to a few meetings and see what it was about. But just a few meetings. Didn't mm-hmm. mean anything. Don't get your hopes up. Uh-huh. I said, okay, that's cool. And so I was getting all excited, and I talked to my mom about babysitting for the for the first meeting. And um, I said something about going to RCIA on Thursday. And Lee looked at me, and he said, what do you mean, we? Oh. I said, well, I'm going to go with you. And he said, I, I don't know about that. Hmm. 
And Catherine, you have to understand, I've been praying for this man's conversion for seven years. It never in a million years occurred to me he might not want me to go through this journey with him. Mm-hmm. And was that really hurtful? Him. What was that like? It was. It was. It was but it was, it was only hurtful because I had so much pride that I just, I thought, well, surely I have a right to do this. You know, I'm the one that's prayed you here. Yeah. So- I'm supposed to have the front row seat, dude. Excuse me. I mean, I've earned it. <laughs> it's all about um, me, Lee. Right. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, funny story. That's not how it went down. Um, but, and so even though I was hurt initially, very quickly, the Lord just kind of jumped into my brain and said, shut your mouth and just go with it. Yeah. And I realized that my husband is, I, I said I'm the most, I'm the extrovertiest extrovert ever. He's the introvertiest introvert ever. And I mm-hmm. realized that this was something that he would probably get more out of if I wasn't there. Why? Because I don't know how to shut up. <laughs> and, 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 and these realizations came crashing on me, like one after the other, like you would never shut up. You would talk to him the whole way there. You would talk to him the whole way home. You wouldn't shut up in the class. You're kind of a know-it-all, so you'd want to correct the teacher. Mm-hmm. And then he's going to be embarrassed. And like really that quickly, like by the end of the night, that first night, I was like, yeah, this was probably a good call. <laughs> um, so, so I wrote a little prayer that I could pray before he went each Thursday so that it would make me feel like I was somewhat involved. I was prayerfully supporting him. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I comforted myself with, well, surely he'll pick me to be his sponsor. <laughs> Is that allowed in your parish for spouses to sponsor? It's allowed, but it's discouraged. Okay. Um, and I didn't really know it was discouraged at the time, um, but I was comforting myself with that thought. <laughs> and so um, he kept going and he kept going, and then he decided to... to um, keep going and keep going. And then it was two days before All Saints Day that year. um, And he sat on the couch and we had gotten into kind of a fight earlier in the day over something stupid. Well, actually, it was a pretty good reason thinking back on it. But the point is, we got into a fight. And, you know, I was really frustrated. And um, that night, we were sitting down to talk about it and try to get it resolved. And he said, you know, um, I've been thinking a lot about it. And he had, he had been sitting at a light on the way home, and he saw, this is like two days before November, so this was not normal for this time of year, but he looked up at, at, at a power line, and he saw a bunch of white doves, and they all flew off at once. And for whatever reason, he decided that was his little sign, his little nod from God, that he should become Catholic. When he told me this, I almost fell out of the chair, because of course the Holy Spirit is symbolized by white doves. Mm-hmm. And here he was, and this was what, this was what changed his, you know, this is what made him take that leap of faith, was <laughs> white doves. Wow. That wasn't lost on me, and um, so I was so excited. I was so, so, so excited. I did play it cool, but only for <laughs> about 30 seconds, because I couldn't, I just couldn't hold it, hold it back. I was so excited. Wow. I cried, I sobbed, I laughed, it was it was amazing. Um, so, so as time went on throughout that year that he's going through RCIA and you're not his sponsor and he's going through these classes, was it easier and easier for you to just let go and say, okay, Holy Spirit, you've gotten us this far. Keep going. Finish the it race. Was. It was. I, I had seen 
at, by that point, I had seen so many times where I had started to kind of slowly listen to those little nudgings um, that God, my angel, all the people telling me to shut up, um, were giving me. And I just, at that point, I had let so much go with the flow and let God have take the wheel when it came to Lee's conversion that it was really kind of easy for me to just continue on with that. It had worked out well so far. So I just kind of sat back and let God do what he had to do. Do you have any advice for the spouse out there that's listening who's watching their husband or wife going through RCIA? And I want to know, do you wish you had done anything differently during that year of his RCIA process? No, I I would just advise them to pray. Just pray. You are the you know, you're the support um, for your spouse on any given day, a- any kind of support, you know, physical, emotional, um, spiritual, of course. And it's your job to get your spouse to heaven. So if they're taking these steps to get there, just prayerfully support them. And anything you can do to make getting to RCIA easier um, logistically, you know, uh, why don't you take the car you like to drive? Why don't you, you know, I'll don't worry about dinner. I'll take care of it, you know, um, one of you normally does the cooking and that's the person going to RCA, you know what, we're going to have pizza that night. Anything you can do to help make it a bit easier for that person to make make sure they keep their commitment of getting to RCIA. And then, um, you know, they may be the researcher type who wants to do a lot of research. Find out if your parish has a subscription to formed.org because there are tons of amazing podcasts and um, resources on that website that are free that they can access. And, you know, have another thing I started doing, this was more of my holy subversion, was I would leave the Catholic, we have a Catholic radio station here in Houston, um, and it's 14.30 a.m. for those of you listening here in Houston. Um, I would leave it on in the car when I got out of the car, so that when he got in the car, it was already on. Mm -hmm. And that way, if they were talking about something that might pique his interest, he might not change the channel. Um, So just do... Try to think of little things like that that you might be able to do to help nurture that little seedling of faith and water that little seed. Um, but above all, just pray. Pray for pray for your spouse and all of the of the obstacles that the evil one work, will certainly certainly throw in their way to keep them from Christ. So just beware that the spiritual warfare is a real thing, and they're gonna they're baby they're baby tiny little baby Catholics. They they're gonna need you to to pray them through this. You know what? I'm glad you just said that because I've had a few friends that had spouses come into the church within the last few years or even just last year. And I know that that first year is full of all kinds of blessings and they're the brand new baby Catholic that you were just talking about that's on fire for the faith and is super zealous about it. But at the same time, the spiritual attack is real and it's happening at a disproportionate rate, because there is so much grace happening in that baby Catholic's life. So I was going to tongue in cheek say, so life after your husband became Catholic was perfect, right? (laughs) (laughs) And obviously it wasn't. So were you prepared for the spiritual reality of what life after conversion was like? Talk to us about that. I had no idea, because I had never been there. Um, It was completely uncharted territory. The spiritual attacks were real. We, inside the first year of his conversion, I experienced 
some health problems. I had never, I've been a fairly healthy person. All of a sudden, I started having serious hormonal problem, hormonal problems, um, and out of nowhere, and it was causing some pretty, wrecking some pretty bad havoc in our lives. Um, on top of that, we were a victim of random violence when someone drove by and um, fired a semi-automatic weapon into our cars in the driveway. Um, a lot of weird things happened to us that first year. Um, and no, life wasn't perfect, but I will say that I don't think I ever had the unrealistic expectation that, oh, once he converts, everything will be fine. We won't have problems. I never told myself that converting would make everything magically fine. What I was desiring more so than anything, besides the fact that he would be baptized, was the sacramental grace in our union, because I knew that the struggles we had already been through would have been made easier had we had that grace. And I just felt like it's like, you know, it's like it's like going out into a rainstorm without an umbrella. Well, you're going to survive. There's a good chance you'll make it, right? But it'll be a heck of a lot more pleasant if you have an umbrella, okay? Mm-hmm. And so that, that grace that we were missing for all those years, we were soaked to the skin, okay? So we were ready for some, for a little bit, for some change into some dry clothes, okay? So um, we were looking for that grace. And so I think I, I never had the expectation that with conversion would come a, a happier, um, automatically overnight healed, you know, healed all our problems. But I definitely recognized that having that extra grace um, was going to be the key to more successfully navigating those challenges. Yeah. I, that makes perfect sense. I was going to ask you how you handle challenges differently now that you're both Catholic, but I think you just answered that by saying you're tapping into those graces that are now available to you that were not in ways before Lee came into the church. Would you say that's right? That's right. And the other part of that is, like I mentioned earlier, because we both have the same ultimate goal for our marriage, and that is to get each other and our children to heaven, because we're united in that overarching goal, that that encompasses every other challenge that we have. And so knowing that we both start now from that same starting point frames all of our challenges differently because we're both coming at it from, okay, realistically, what are the eternal implications of this decision, of this challenge, of this personality flaw, of this um, communication problem we're having? You know, what... What does this look like long-term, not just for the right now, but what can we do to take steps to help resolve this so that in the matter of our souls, you know, we're making the best decisions for our, our path to sanctification. So evening out that yoke and making sure we're both pulling, pulling that spiritual weight evenly makes such a difference for us now. It doesn't solve our problems, but it makes it a lot easier to at least find the common ground to begin to figure out how to solve them. You had a blog series and you called it Unequally Yoked, A Catholic Marries an Agnostic. And at the end of that series, you answered a question. You said, people ask me if I would do it all over. Would I date, then marry an agnostic all over again? And I wanted to ask you, do you remember what your answer was when you wrote that post? And do you still have the same feelings that you did? My answer is pretty unchanged um, because Lee and I both 
look at the answer pretty much the same. And that's, I don't really know if I would. Can you um, tell us, explain? Because I sure. think that a lot of people would have expected the opposite answer. Because it sounds very holy and pious to say, yes, absolutely, I would walk through fire and everything that you've just been unspooling for the last hour to us. But tell us why. Why is no the answer or probably not? There's a few reasons. One of the reasons is that I'm very aware that while our marriage has turned out wonderfully well, like you said, um, you know, it sounds so uh, pious and holy, this is not the typical outcome for marriages that start out as mixed cults. Um, Typically, if one spouse is Christian or Catholic and the other spouse is unbaptized, there's a lot more heartache involved, um, even more so than what we went through. Part of the reason that I think we were able to, to succeed the way we were was because Lee was always extremely respectful of my beliefs, but more so than that, he had an open heart to what he was watching unfold. If one of the spouses doesn't have that, there's going to be a lot more struggle and ultimately a lot more of a chance for there to be an irreparable rift. Um, you know, even though he, he'll admit to anybody who'll ask him today that, you know, my example of when I really dove into the deep end of my faith was a huge part of his, you know, conversion. We're both really aware that there was a lot of unnecessary heartache and a lot of unnecessary um, pain that we went through that would have been lessened to a greater extent, obviously, like we talked about, if we'd had the graces. And we could have avoided a lot of that pain. You know, as Catholics, we embrace the cross and we embrace the suffering, but we don't necessarily go running after crosses. You know, that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily what God is calling us to do. Um, If it's there, it's there. And we climb the hill to Calvary, and we do what we have to do because that's the example Jesus gave us. But we, we don't chase it down. And so I think that's where my answer comes from. I think my faith would have been a lot stronger, and I think our marriage would have been less strained. Obviously, if we'd have had the graces um, to move forward with that, would we have, you know, the thing I think I I think about, too, is how much more loving and how much more grace would we have had had we started out on that path equally yoked all along? And honestly, we'll never know. Um, You know, I say this in, in, in the postscript of that blog post series you mentioned, but the thing is, at the end of the day, we deliberately took, we deliberately made choices and we deliberately entered this marriage um, that in the majority of cases could have ended in a failed marriage. But worse than that, it could have ended with a destroyed faith for the faithful individual. And I know it's hard to think of it that way because I think the vast majority of our culture would say that the failed marriage would be a bigger problem than the destroyed faith. But realistically, if we truly believe what Christ is asking us to believe, and we believe that the Catholic Church is the one true church, and we believe all the things we profess to believe, then if anything is going to distract us, if anything is going to draw us away from that faith and draw us away from Christ, it's not good for us. And so if the choice becomes a failed marriage versus losing Jesus, we know what we have to do. Um, 
So would I put myself in a position again where I might have to choose between a failed marriage and losing Jesus? No. But that's because I know myself and I know that I don't know that I'd, you know, necessarily be strong enough to do that. So mm-hmm. I think I think this whole scenario is really just if you find yourself in a position where you are in a marriage where you are unequally yoked, you know, I hope you you've heard something that you can take away from this to help give you some hope that, you know, God is the author of our story and while there's life there's hope. There's always hope for your marriage, for your spouse. Um, And, you know, that's going to be up to them and God, really. Um, But if you find yourself in a position where you are dating someone and things look like they might be heading towards marriage, um, if you're not already, I just, I would advise you to take everything to prayer. Really, really talk to people who've been in this situation if you can. Um, Pray about it discern, find find a trusted priest, a good, faithful priest, and or, or spiritual director, and talk to them about it. Um, go through, weigh all of your options, and, and offer sacrifices for your beloved, and offer, offer up prayers, and maybe fast, and, you know, do the things that you know are going to not only draw you to Jesus so you can hear his voice better, but will help you discern whether or not it's wise to keep traveling down that path. And if you do determine that it's not a good idea to stay with this person you're with, cut ties as soon as you know that. Don't string them along thinking they may change, um, because they may. But if you if you realize in your heart of hearts that God's asking you to make that break, make the break, because Jesus is going to be there to catch you when your your heart is broken. You know, he... His is the only love that will never break your heart. So he'll be right there waiting for you. Um, so I just would encourage women who are in that situation, or anybody listening to this that's in either of those situations, remember that God is the one, your relationship with God is the relationship that takes precedence over everything else. Yeah, and I think that that's such a word of encouragement because for a lot of those who are not married yet and are in a relationship with someone of a different faith or no faith tradition, or they have gone forward and married that person. I think for a lot of those relationships, the other person's faith progress might have ended at that place where Wendy got to where you realized, if this is going to happen for this other person, it's because I have fallen in love with God, and you learned to lead with love. And maybe that person may never join the church while you're alive. And that might be the end of the story as far as you know. But it was such a turning point for me to read. Have you read the diary of Elizabeth LeSueur? I have not. And so many people have recommended it to me. Wendy Clark. I know. Of all the people on this planet, you need to read (laughs) this thing. So for those of you who don't know about this story, Elizabeth and I don't speak French, so forgive me. Elizabeth Lesueur was a French woman who was married to a militant atheist who very actively, not at all like Lee, very actively tried to subvert her faith and was trying to discourage her from practicing it. She became very, very ill during their marriage and offered up her entire life as a sacrifice for his conversion. And 
wrote the secret diary. It's called the secret diary of Elizabeth Lassure. I'll link to it in the show notes. But anyway, I actually have a copy of it. It's just okay. No excuses. Then you're starting it tomorrow. (laughs) Okay. Um, But she writes the secret diary and chronicles all of the different prayers and sacrifices. And you start to see this transformation of her attitude from in the beginning, very actively trying to will her husband into the church and being a little bit more forceful and vocal about it. And then slowly and surely just leading with trying to show her husband through the active choice of loving him no matter what the outcome and giving up prayer and fasting for him. Anyway, spoiler alert, she ends up dying. The husband finds this diary after she dies and he becomes a Catholic priest and is now act. He spent the rest of his life trying to have her become a canonized saint. And she's currently a servant of God. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So you need to read that starting tomorrow. Totally. But what, totally. I, what I was trying to say is your message today, I think, is just a very healthy, prudent word of caution for those who are not married yet, just to realize there are real crosses involved if you are going to become romantically involved in a relationship with someone of a different faith tradition. That's just the reality. And right. marriage, as we can attest to, is difficult enough without the added challenges. And so it, that it's just a reality. But... Not to despair if you are married to someone of a different faith tradition to say that it couldn't end up like it did for you, but to not lose heart like Elizabeth Lassure. We may never know this side of heaven, the kind of effect that we have on our spouses, but that's beautiful, Wendy. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Can we close super quick with two fun questions? Always. Yeah, okay, so do it. I already bullied you and told you the book that you have to read in 2018. Do you have a book recommendation for me, something I have to read by the end of the year? You have got to read, and I don't know if you have already, but it's called The Awakening of Miss Prim. <gasps> and love, love, love. I heard about it through Haley Stewart and Christy Isinger. Yes, I saw it on Christy's feed about two years ago, um, I think, and I I finally read it, and oh my word, I could not put it down. I had it done in like a day and a half. It was so good. I really so enjoyed good. that one. That was a really good one. Good book title. Those of you who haven't read it, I'll put that one in the show notes too. Okay, last question. Sure. What movie should Philip and I watch for our next at-home date night? You know what's so funny? I asked Lee... Um, a similar question recently and he's like the notebook and I was like really the notebook he's like okay all right let me be serious and then he's like Armageddon I'm like what Armageddon why so um here's the thing I'll be honest we're not movie people mostly because we don't we don't have we haven't had time for movies in like ages but I'll tell you what I want to see and so you know maybe it can just go on your list is the movie that's out right now and it's it's wonder with Owen Wilson and Julia Roberts. And it's this, from what I understand, beautiful story about um, a little boy with a facial deformity and just his amazingly supportive parents and how they navigate social situations with him and going to school. And it just seems like it's a really heartwarming film. And so it's definitely on our got a, got a red box set up as soon as it comes out list. Well, you have to tell me if you do see it, because I keep seeing the books everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, Uh um, 
I need to hear. Listeners, if you have read the book, let me know what age you think is appropriate for that, because I see it everywhere, and I haven't heard from anyone close to me who's read it. So let us know that. And if you've seen the movie, let us know too, because I haven't heard any feedback about the movie, and I tend to be kind of rigid in my rule about having to read the book first. Yeah, me too. Me too. But I like uh, Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson a lot, so... It can't be that bad. I'm sure it's good. That's that's exactly what I tell myself. So we'll have to find out together. Maybe we'll just compare notes on that later. And let Lee know that Armageddon, I think I saw that in theaters at least four times when it came out. I love Armageddon. (laughs) I do too, but I was just like, really? That's like your romantic movie? Okay. Um, Did you forget about the animal crackers scene, Wendy? Listen, (laughs) it's gold. Okay, that's cinematic gold right there. Yes, and, and it let's is. Not, let's just not forget that Bruce Willis is in it. Can we not forget that oh, either? Oh, yeah, yeah. So come on. Yeah, it's good and stuff. It, isn't Owen Wilson Space Cowboy? Yeah, I think so. He's in it too. So. so that's a good connection so. to your recommendation. That was oh, good. Yeah. See, good job. It's all it's all connected. It was it's planned. The six degrees of Owen Wilson. It's funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Wendy, I have kept you way too long tonight, but thank you so much just for being vulnerable and honest and sharing about your story and just showing all of us how God can work very clearly, his grace through a situation where you found yourself at 20 in a crisis pregnancy. And here you are now, mother of five. And you have this husband who's in the church. And obviously, life isn't perfect. But you're working in the imperfect and God is doing beautiful things in your life. So thank you for your witness. And thank you to Lee for his willingness to share your family story with us. I'm so grateful to Wendy for coming on the show and sharing about her experience. I did want to make sure and circle back to what Wendy said about whether or not she would do it all over again. I don't think she was trying to be prescriptive. She wasn't trying to tell everyone that they need to follow this advice and this is exactly what you should do in every single instance. That She wasn't trying to say that no one should enter into a romantic relationship with someone of a different or no faith background. Instead, I think she was very wisely trying to advise us as someone who's been through that experience, how truly difficult that experience was for her and how it could be difficult for someone else. And that it's important to remember that When you enter into that romantic relationship with someone of a different faith background or no faith background, that that person's conversion may never happen, that they may never come to believe in Christ, and that the believer themselves, the person hoping for the other person's conversion, they may never be willing to go through their own conversion and softening of heart so that the other person is more willing to follow in their footsteps. And yes, with God, all things are absolutely possible. And we should always hope and pray for the conversion of others. But we should also be hoping for our own continual conversions, that we will continue to lean more on the mercy of God. And hopefully, being that grace-filled spirit and being that light will allow the other person to more likely follow in trusting in faith. 
But I think Wendy was offering a beautiful reminder that it is a difficult road and it's not to be taken lightly, but that with God, all things are possible. And we should hope and trust that with him, it can happen, but not to enter into those relationships of being unequally yoked lightly. If you'd like to find Wendy online, she is on Twitter and Instagram at Cajun Texas Mom, and her blog can be found at www.cajuntexasmom.com. I'll include all of her contact information and email address if you'd like to find her, and that'll be in the show notes for episode 14. I want to hear from you. Are you or were you unequally yoked in your relationship? What advice do you have for someone in that situation? Please give me your input. You can email me at podcast at katherineboucher.com, and that way I can share your advice on the next episode. Also, this time of year, I know right around Easter is full of a lot of spiritual warfare, especially for recent converts or those of you who had a spouse recently come into the church. I just wanted to let you know that you are in my prayers. I have a few friends that have either themselves or their spouses recently came into the church, and I know that this time of year can really be a struggle. So I want to let you know you're in my prayers and also If you're past the honeymoon in your own faith life, maybe you felt like you were really on fire with things and feeling on the top of the mountain, having that transfiguration experience, but now you feel like the honeymoon has kind of worn off. Please don't be discouraged because this, just like marriage in real life, is like this when the honeymoon wears off. This is where the good stuff happens. Now that I've been married 10 years, I'm really starting to understand that, that you just need to keep digging, keep investing, just like you want to have regular date nights in marriage, keep digging with your faith life. And you may not always have those mountaintop experiences, but God is still there. He loves you just as much now as he did when you were having all those feelings of consolation and lovey-dovey feelings about your faith life, but stick with things. Know that I'm in your corner and that I'm praying for you, especially this time of year. Also, thank you for listening and sharing the show with your friends. Um, I just checked and While You Were Folding has been downloaded over 5,000 times as of today. So keep sharing your feedback so that I can add your voice to the conversation. That's what I enjoy most about this show, being able to hear from the listeners and finding out how the show is impacting you in your day-to-day life. Until next time, don't be afraid to begin again and share what you heard while you were folding.